guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Welcome Nation. This is a quick little to-do that I did with my wife, Kathy, um, related to lockdowns and related to school closures. And this is our two cents of what's happening locally. Hopefully you guys might find this informative or might induce some dialogue amongst your crew. Before I forget, don't hesitate to check out our Solving Healthcare store, online store. You go to solvinghealthcare.ca backslash shop and you'll see our uh, our resilience conference, our low carb conference. And you'll also see our merchandise, which is beautiful and dynamic. So yeah, guys, without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to my wife, my beautiful wife, Dr. Catherine Karamantang. Let's do this. Quadcast Nation, Albertans, Ontarians, our people, Canadians, we are talking with the one and only Catherine Karamantang. She is what I like to call my wife. Um, and we've had many uh, discussions about the approaches to COVID. We talked earlier about how there's been, you know, just dealing with the mental health issues and testing and so forth. But yesterday there was uh, an announcement in our province that in Ontario and specifically in our lovely city of Ottawa, that schools are going to remain closed. And so we are going to put in our two cents about this. Catherine Karamantang, how are you? <laughs> good, Kwajo Karamantang. I'm good. Good. So. Um, living the dream. Living the dream. Everyone keeps saying that. Actually, it's a good barometer that they're unhappy. If someone tells you that they are living the dream, they're secretly dead inside. <laughs> I don't know if it's so, a secret. Well, we just, know that to be true. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm the psychologist. Uh, what were your initial thoughts when you saw, when you heard about the Ford announcement? Yeah, I mean, like, it fills me with dread, personally, because I just, I just know how good school has been for the kids. Um, there was a significant change uh, in their just sort of overall happiness and well-being and and behavior and everything when they started back at school in the fall um so yeah i i just and over the break i mean the break was great it's always nice to have christmas break but over the break like you notice it you notice over time the lack of routine and structure kind of uh, kind of settles in and affects the kids and and yeah i'm 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 worried about it but it less 
less so am I worried about our kids in particular because you know we're in a fortunate situation that will get by right we have support and resources but um mostly I I just I was just actually mostly I was just confused um I so I feel a lot of dread for right now for for other families that are struggling more uh, kids that are in bad situations at home, kids that need the support of the staff and the teachers at school, um, teachers that need, or uh, students, uh, kids that need to get out of the house uh, to be safe and to be cared for. I think um, we're not hearing enough about that during uh, all of this, during the pandemic, how much all of the lockdowns and isolation is affecting those kids. Um, and also, I feel for families who do not have the ability like you and I do to, well, you don't have this ability, but to have a, a parent who works virtually from home. So people who have to go off work and they're going to suffer significant socioeconomic stressors um, and impacts because of uh, school being out, because they just cannot work. Like I keep talking about the gas, the gas station attendant. You know, what does that person do there? Maybe they're the sole uh, breadwinner in the family and uh, and they what are they going to do if they have to be home with their kids? Like, I don't know. So um, that that's it. But the second thing, sorry, just to just to do it. The second thing is um, confusion because we received a letter and this uh, just speak, think speaks to the government's like lack of communication and lack of organization and how rash some of these decisions are. So on January 2nd, we receive a letter from the Minister of Education saying, schools are safe. We know schools are a safe place for kids to be. We haven't seen a significant amount of spread in schools. And then we go flash forward a week. And so we're gonna go back to school on January 11th for elementary students. That's the plan, that's what he sends out. And then flash forward, you know, roughly a week or whatever, and we see Ford come on and he says schools are safe. We haven't seen that as a significant source of spread uh, and outbreaks and things like that. And we've been able to keep them safe. Good job, you know, Ontario Minister of Education, whatever. Good job, Ontario. Um, but we're freaking out because when we sent all the kids home, we saw an increased number of cases blah, blah, blah. Like we don't really know, like we've talked about the metrics around that and how that data is gathered, but, um, and denominators and so forth. But anyways, we're freaking out because we're seeing increased cases in kids. And so even though we know schools are a safe place for kids to be and really important for kids to go to school, we're not sending them back for another two weeks. So I'm just really confused of, you know, which one is it? Like, are schools safe or are they not safe? And if they're not safe, why aren't we making them safe? And if they're not safe, why were they safe before December um, when all, like when numbers were going up and up and up and up, why were they safe then? And we are getting messaging, they're safe, they're safe, they're safe. And then after two weeks of holiday, all of a sudden they were really scared for our kids. Like, I, I just, it's, it's very confusing to me and I don't, it think, I think it shows to me that they're not making decisions um, in an informed data-driven way. I think no. they're making decisions um, right now. It feels to me like they're making decisions out of fear and someone's in his ear uh, feeding a line of fear. It might also be political is my concern is that he needs to make it look like he's doing something 
um, in yeah. the case of rising numbers. So, yeah. yeah. And my, my, my beef the whole time is like, you use the data to make your decisions. You go to the problem areas, address it front on. Schools weren't an issue locally. Uh, bar, bars on paper, see, what you would think would be a, a, uh, an issue, but locally, if you look at the data, it hasn't been. Uh, gyms, restaurants, all these things. So why don't we go to the heart of the problem, which is long-term care, which we're addressing with you know, vaccinations. So let's scale that up big time. And then the marginalized communities. And I, I, I hate this because as you said, the marginalized communities are gonna get hit the hardest. This is where you feed your kids you know, when we did our Bridges Over Barriers uh, charity, like we ramped up because there were so many kids and families struggling. You're a single mom. And as you said, you're, you're an attendant for a gas, uh, like you're, you're like a, a servant there and you don't have the resources to be at home. Um, like, what are you going to choose, you know, and where are you going to get your income from? You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Um, like, it's just... And, and then the whole child abuse domestic, like uh, side of things where people are stuck at home with their abusers. Now that there's no activities, plus there's no school, like it's very short-sighted and it's very reactionary. Let's have metrics where we know we're going to be using uh, and uh, to help us decide these things, but also let's close or adjust on areas that are a problem, uh, you know, and uh, I, I just, it's, it's killing me. Like it, it really is killing me. And especially when like selfishly, when I look at our boys too, you know, like this is the environment that they thrive in. Like when they went back to school, you saw that jump in their step. There were kids again. And these are like well-adapted kids. Imagine all these people that have like, that are the kids that are, you know, struggling, struggling. That don't yeah. have a good home environment. Yeah, they need that. They need to be at school. And and the, the province has said that and the data has said that and all the child mental health advocates even remember like Chio and all the hospitals came out in the summer yeah. and they were like, no, kids need to be in school. They need to go back to school. And they said it is like cost. This is the other thing we talk about cost benefit analysis. So so the cost of shutting down schools is greater than the benefit. We know that the spread does not come from schools. Yes, there are cases and they keep talking about, we have to be careful when we look at numbers and hear them talk about numbers. They keep saying, oh, there are 700 schools, you know, with cases in them. But what we know, but then in the, the next thing, they're sending out letters saying it's safe. You know, we don't see spread and that's the truth is we see cases come into the schools, but the measures we're taking in schools, both in terms of you know, all the masking and distancing and whatever we're doing, the, the protection within the schools, but also the actions they're taking to shut down classes when there's risk of spread within right. the classroom and then shut down schools, which I think has been a rare event, but some cases they've shut down whole schools um, because they felt there might be spread within the school between classes. The, the, those measures are protecting the, um, the whole population in the school, the staff and the students alike, from outbreaks, from further spread. And that's why schools are safe. 
So on the one hand, they can give us these big metrics about how many cases we see in schools, but that's why on the other hand, they can say, but we know that schools are a, say, a relatively safe place to be. So then when you do the cost benefit analysis, well, what's the cost? Like, let's go back to what all the children's hospitals and children's mental health experts said in, in, this, in the summer when they were deciding whether or not to go back to in-person learning. They all came out and said, benefit outweighs that cost, right? We have to let kids go back to school. So I don't understand, that's what's confusing to me, what has changed that allows them to now say that that benefit no longer outweighs that cost. I mean, it's like you said, there's a, like there's, there's fear being pumped into the, I feel like his ear, like whether it's the new variant, I mean, locally. Yeah, talking and on- about the new variant, they were on about that again. Again today on the news conference, they were on about the the South African variant and all this kind of stuff. I'm Let, like, listen, I even Isaac uh, Bogash uh, sent out an article today. I sent it to you too. That you know, the, there's prelim data showing that you know the vaccine will be effective against uh, the new variant the and the UK, the UK variant. Version. I think yeah, they're UK. worried about the South African one. But the thing, the thing here too is that. I mean, I get that they're concerned about that, but we have to wait for the evidence to be out there that things that this is a real risk, right? Like Mm -hmm. if we see an explosion of cases of the new variant, then we can say, even if you see that, like really watch it closely, they can watch that closely. And if they see pockets where that's coming up, okay, well, is it happening to kids? Okay, well, now we make different decisions, but you can't make these decisions with such a high mental health, um, physical health, social cost to kids and families without having the evidence that you need to do that. Like this is where we were talking about with masking. Like there's all sorts of debates about the benefits of masking out there, but everybody's kind of widely accepted that like it's a small step that we can do. There's not a huge cost to masking. Right. So we can can we mask indoors? Absolutely. You know, can we mask wearing close proximity to people? Absolutely. Because there's not a big cost. Do we know that there's a huge benefit? It's not entirely clear. But if there's any benefit, the benefit outweighs that small cost. Right. But with sending kids to school, the cost, the cost is huge with, with stopping them from going to school. The cost is huge. And so, yeah, I just, I just feel like they're not doing that calculation. They're treating it like masking, like, oh, well, you know, it's easy. Like we just keep well, the kids. Home. Well, the other can... thing is the kids are not self-educating at home. Like they're saying, yes. oh, now we have this whole virtual learning program. Like every single parent, you should see the, like, you know, parent groups exploding on Facebook about like all the problems they're having, the technological problems. So parents are having to be there with their elementary school age kids to help them navigate this online learning system, which is new for everyone. So now there's an impact on parents' ability to work at home. And, you know, I'm already talking about making changes to my work. I'm, I'm stopping taking new referrals, like as of now, because as long and as- And you're a mental health professional I'm when people are person. like, I need you the most right now. But we cannot, I cannot add on at work. I cannot increase my load. And in fact, I'm looking at dialing back a little bit while this is still going on because I can't know that I, like I need to be available for the potentiality that our kids might be home beyond even January 25th, which is- Oh, you can't, I mean, you can't trust these cats. You know, you can't trust them at all. They say the 25th, but like- the case numbers are going to be like the hospitalizations are still going to be high case numbers and likelihood, you know, 
is still probably going to be high. So what's going to be the barometer for for dialing back? I don't trust those cats. Well, that's at it. All. So what's the metric? And when you when you put in an extreme measure like this, like you close down schools, what's the metric that you're going to use to open them up again? Like at what point? So if it's so unsafe now, and Ford is saying our kids' health, I will not put our kids' health at risk. This is his big language that he uses. So. So then what's the metric that you're going to use to say when we open schools again, now our kids' health is no longer at significant risk? Are yeah. those new variants going to all of a sudden be gone? Are we going to have that much more vaccination and that much more immunity? Like definitely not in this population. Uh, like, is he going to vaccinate all the teachers all of a sudden? Like, I don't, you know, like, what are you going to do that's going to change or how is the situation going to change that you're all of a sudden, so know it's safe in your mind. Like yeah. it was safe on January 2nd. It's not safe on whenever he said a thing, January 8th or whatever that was. I don't, what even day is it right now? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it's not even, and then it's not safe. And then, and then it's back and then it's going to be back to being safe. Yeah. Like it, it just, you know, it's, it's not data driven. And that's what really scares me about the decisions that are being made now. Yeah. yeah the other it, thing, sorry. So go ahead. I could, no, no, go You're ahead. more important. Yeah. Well, it, it's just, it's, that's the thing. I mean, I went out on a limb there and was at, against lockdowns locally because of our our numbers. And what's in the back of my mind is it's always hard to bring it back down. Like, it's hard to get out of lockdown. You could always justify, like, when your numbers are so low um, and you're going into lockdown, everything, like, it's going to be higher than when you started, period. You know what yeah. I mean? We knew the numbers were going to go up because of, unfortunately, like, uh, people getting together. But, like, this was this was an expectation, but the the goalposts are is our system being overwhelmed? And locally, once again, a regionalized approach. We are not being overwhelmed. Yes, numbers once again going up, but yes, this is part of uh, this is the expectation. And um, I have to tell you, I looked at the numbers in Ottawa today, and they went up like just after Christmas, like we talked about. But they haven't been going up the last like over that time. They've plateaued here. Like today, and, the number of cases was 68. Like what you see in the news is, oh, there are 147 cases. Well, today there were 68 cases, you know? So like the shutdown probably over the holidays worked, you know, people stopped gathering. We had that increase from the gatherings before and now it's coming back down. So why can't we open our schools? Because, because we're being lumped in with Toronto. Like it doesn't even matter what we do. The other thing that like all those, uh, all those uh, epidemiologists, math modelers, and all that stuff. Name me a single one that's factored in that we are vaccinating our most vulnerable. Name me one, or show, or show me that. You know yeah. what I mean? And like, can they even can they even model that in like a rate of vaccination? Like no, but, probably, but over different populations, like they don't even model spread differently over different age populations, like, you know? So how can they model vaccination? And I don't know. It just, no, I mean, I'm just saying like, even to like factor it in loosely, like mm -hmm. to know, knowing that the people that are most likely to be hospitalized are, we're going to try and get them vaccinated, like long-term care, certainly right yeah. now, but what we need, like, they also need to be working backwards. Like when I see my pop, uh, my uh, uh, ICU patients, it's multi-generational homes, older patients with tons of comorbidities. We need to be ramping up big time with that population. Like if we're thinking about this, like truly uh, uh, strategically, 
And the, the government, have you heard him address anything about vaccine hesitancy? And mm-hmm. I got to tell you guys. I mention it. It's only from you that I heard that up to 50% of people uh, long term care workers scheduled for their vaccines are not showing up for their vaccination appointments. Yeah, or like saying they don't want it. Like, so I don't know if this mainstream media, I think it's mainstream media, but uh, yeah, I've heard from several colleagues. I've heard from, especially in the GTA area, um, that people are reluctant to take the vaccine. And um, this is a, to me, it's out of all the stuff you're going to pay attention to and put your efforts into. <laughs> school and shit fuck that get to the issues man vaccine like i can't believe we're not talking about like vaccine hesitancy yes there's been a slow rollout or whatever but now get it out get it out to the people that need it and educate don't shame but educate and say you know what this is important to the path forward protect yourself let's get back to normal life yeah. So, so like preach, first of all, but, but preach. yeah, <laughs> preach. Um, but, uh, but second of all, I think um, what we've talked about too, that I think is important to bring up is the low hanging fruit phenomenon that, and this is where I think the political side of it comes in. They feel like they need to do something because the cases are out of control and, you know, they need to, they need to act. So they just choose sort of the easiest things to do where if you look at the data, like most of the spread right now is in, in workplace it's in private gathering and workplace, right? So close contact and workplace. And so um, what are they doing? Like we talk about manu- the manufacturing plants and things like that. They're saying, oh, we're going to suffer huge economic costs if we shut down. But that's where the cases are. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, like that sucks. You know, those businesses like that will suffer. And maybe the, the people who work there, I don't know if they can put some economic measures in to support them if they shut down the factories. Um, but they like, if that's where the spread is, that's where you target it. And that's where he's talked about not even just shutting them down, but why have we not, okay. Remember rapid testing? Like, does anybody remember when they were talking about rapid testing is the way through the pandemic we have to get, mm-hmm. get so, and then they're like, okay, we approved all these rapid tests. And then Ontario said, oh, we've acquired all these rapid tests. Where are the rapid tests? Where the fuck? You could bust out a vaccine that quick and you can't get the yeah. rapid testing to circulate in, in, in the populace? What's Why? up? This would prevent so much of the spread in those big industries. If every single day, the people coming in who labeled themselves as asymptomatic, because if you're symptomatic, you don't go to work, right? Is the idea. Yeah. So if you're asymptomatic, you just get your rapid test and maybe it's not 100% foolproof. It doesn't need but to if be. You, it doesn't need to be. If you have a positive, then you go for a PCR to, to confirm it. You know, there's there's a way to do this. Even at the school level, if mm. they wanted to, if they wanted to open schools safely, why are they not testing at schools a rapid test? Why not? If you're that worried about it. So I, there's ways forward that I feel that are ch- more challenging for the government to pursue for whatever reasons. And so instead of talking about those challenges and why they can't work through them, I, so we don't even know if they're addressing them, but if they are, they're not talking about them and why they can't work through them. They're just low hanging fruit, shut it down, shut it down, shut it down, shut it down. You know, like it, it's not a smart, thoughtful, innovative, data-driven approach. It's lazy. It, it's, it's lazy. absolutely lazy. And the people, you'll hear about all the Quebec side, all oh, these restrictions aren't working and all that stuff. It's like, you haven't addressed the issue. Right. So you <laughs> haven't not, dealt with the problem. The yeah, right. Deal with, pay, 
pay the people, pay essential workers so that they have incent, like incentive to get tested or to stay home. Because right. right now, if you got minimal income and there's and you got sniffles, you're like, am I going to go take a day off? OK, go and get tested in like wherever I got to go get tested. And if I get tested, I have to be off for two weeks and I don't have a source of income. Why the hell am I going to get tested? Yeah, totally. Like, deal with that you barrier. On those people, deal with that barrier. Yeah, give yes. people sick days, give people paid time off to, yeah, to be tested and to isolate. Absolutely. And easy access to that money. Not like you have to wait four months, you know, for the government to process your paperwork, but like straight up, like you apply to the system, you got it. And, and ultimately save the system more money, I'm sure. And oh, then, oh, I'm sure. Oh I'm sure God. it will. Like, the cost of this right now. Like short term, this might be cheaper right now, but long term, the cost is going to be bigger because we know that there will be other outcomes. The problem is, is the government doesn't even talk about those outcomes. Like they're not even really talking about mental health. Like it's barely a mention. It's barely a footnote in their conversations. They just kind of like, oh, well, we're scared of people dying. So this is what we have to do. And we know that there's an impact. Even Ford, I couldn't believe how dismissive he was when he said, you know, we're shutting down again. And Ottawa got upset about that. And he came on the news, on a news conference and said, come on, people, like, this is only a couple weeks. This is not that hard. This is only, you know, a month, 28 days. This is not that hard. Like, you know, there's harder things in life. I couldn't believe how dismissive that was, because first of all, we know that it could not just be 28 days, like no. you said. I mean, this is like what we knew from March, right? They're like, oh, shut down schools for two weeks. He's proven that it's not just 28 days and the kids go back to school on January 11th. Like he keeps adding new measures in. So, and then 28 days for people of shutting their businesses down, you know, of pulling their kids out of school. Like that's not just like, oh, it's kind of tough, but we'll get through. Like at 10 months in or whatever we are to a pandemic, like that could drive people under, you know, that could be the tipping point. It's yeah, I, it it's was certainly for I, it businesses. language very dismissive. Yeah, man, it's just I don't know. And it, it's just, you know, a lot of people would be understanding if it's like, you know, authentic and addressing some of these issues or just even acknowledging some of these issues. We know it's hard on your mental health. We know it's hard on your um on your businesses. And we're gonna do our best to try and address these things. Like just have some remnants yeah. of I I actually disagree with you. I think they're doing that. I think they need to do more. I think that's that classic lip servicing, like our thoughts and prayers are with you. Like, sorry, this happened to you, you know, thoughts and prayers. See you later. Like, I, I think they need to be introducing like significant measures to curb that. And I think they need to be considering that in the modeling. Like when they consider modeling of lockdown, they need to be doing also running along that modeling of the mental health impact. Did you hear that? I think it was in the month of November or December, um, 10% of people on survey in Canada endorsed suicidal ideation. The year before at that same time, it was like 1% or 2%, something like that. I don't have the data in front of me, but I heard this uh, in the media. And I was like, that was one story, 10% from 2%, let's say. So five times the number of people in Canada are having suicidal thoughts at this time, five times. So it's gone up 500%. 
You know, when you think like the way they're presenting numbers, they're like, you know, cases, positivity rates in youth age 12 and 13 has gone up 120%. Whoa, scary. The, the, case, the case rates of suicidal ideation in adults in Canada has gone up 500%. Yeah. Why is that not being presented that way? Why is the government not saying that's a significant issue? You know, we have people who are turning to substances. We have people who are thinking of killing themselves. Like this, we have people who are abusing their children. You know, yeah. we have kids who are something like, why aren't we actually calculating that data? They can do that. And, and they, and I feel like they don't want to know. And do something about it. Yeah. Like yeah, see like, what's happening. Acknowledge and do something about it because it's, it's tragic. And to me, you know, I, I still remember it. I distinctively remember reading that article back in, we'll say April or May, you know, uh, calls to child services is down. Yeah. And then you read further on, it's because the kid, uh, kids aren't, uh, aren't at school and there's less, the teachers aren't making the calls. And, and so mm -hmm. kids are at home with their abusers. And, I, and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, we're not even bring, we're not talking about this. We're not yeah. bringing this up. I mean, back then it was, taboo to say anything that was anti like not if you didn't say anything but stay home everything yeah. else was like taboo to say but yeah. um it's just this this theme of like being so myopic it was a very narrow vision in terms of uh our approach to this and i i, I mean kathy you know you and i've talked about this i get this a lot actually about whether it's on social media or people that are just very fearful they're like what gives you the authority to like what do you know you're not an epidemiologist you're not a uh infectious disease doc and all that stuff and and i gave that a lot of thought too with all this stuff and it comes down to the fact that in my line of work as an icu doc we we always have to look at things holistically we can't you have all these um you have all these, for example, a, a, a kidney specialist, lung specialist, trauma surgeon that comes in and puts their opinion in, but not realizing their, your decision on the kidneys will affect the lung or the, the, kidney, the decision on the lungs is going to affect the heart. And, all. and so I, we always have to take a step back and say, what's going to be best for that patient? And similar to this, what's going to be best for our society as a whole? You know, like, yes, COVID is an issue, but it has secondary consequences. How are we mitigating those risks? How do we balance that? It's not a simple, yes, everything we got to do to reduce COVID risk. Otherwise, like, what are we like, what are we going to do? And think about who it's hurting the most. And often it's our youngest generation. It's our kids who often these, like, if they get hit hard or impacted hard, it's a lifelong, it has the potential to be a lifelong implication or a generational implication. So all of us, I encourage us to have a bird's eye view with a lot of the stuff that we're doing and ask ourselves, does it make sense? Is it actually data driven? Is it going to solve the problem? And what are the consequences to the actions? I'm just, I'm just. Yeah. The other thing I think that people don't know about you uh, and, and what you're doing right now, which obviously I see because we have these conversations and I fortunately would get to live with you <laughs> but, but is that you know so not only are you an icu physician and you have that perspective of like being able to bring the data together like you said but also like you're in like your front line like you're in the scenes 
um, you're also privy to information from a lot of other physicians and specialists across the country, but especially in Ontario. And so you're talking to ICU physicians in Toronto about how things are going, about how their ICUs are doing. You're talking to specialists, uh, infectious disease specialists in the province. Um, and you're talking to school social workers. And, you know, so you're, you actually have a lot of lines in on what's going on and you're bringing all of this information together and like you do in your job all the time for the best interest of your individual patients, you're bringing that information together and you're saying, well, what makes sense here? And you are constantly researching, like you're reading all the articles that come out, not just the news, but like the scientific papers, you're constantly reading all of this information. So I think people kind of think that you're a guy standing there with a microphone who's just saying his opinion based on what his personal experience is, but it's not just personal experience. Like you're gathering a lot of really well-informed information um, and bringing it together um, and, and, and making your, like stating your opinion based on that or making your opinion based on that. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, not that anybody's gonna learn that from us talking about that here today, but I think that a lot of people don't, don't know what you're actually doing to form these opinions. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's too bad. It's too bad. I don't know who Ford has on his team. I'm not saying that you should be on his team, but like, I just don't know that he has, it doesn't sound to me right now, like he has those void, those multiple different perspectives, um, really there's, voicing it. There's no red team, blue team. I'm sure. Sorry. Like just to give you a sense is like a lot of these, um, organizations that are making big decisions. They'll have a team that is pro one decision, a team pro and against the decision or tell you about the negative consequences and then try and figure out a solution that will, uh, you know, will be the best moving forward. It doesn't sound like that. It just sounds like I got, you know, fear, COVID side cat, well, in that ear, you yeah, know what I mean? Constantly the modeling, like even today he was back talking. He's like, if, if Ontario's could look at the modeling, they would know that what we're in for. I know, and it just it just reminds me that they said that by December, the modeling, the new modeling that should be getting better over time, let's just say they should be learning from their mistakes, but the new modeling in the fall said that by December, this was modeling in like October. So we're talking two months out, like we're not talking I about- it was, like I, I think, it was, yeah, it was October, yeah. 3,000 cases a day in Ontario is what they said. So I know we're at 3,000 and I know that's not good. And I know the ICUs in the Toronto region in South, true Southern Ontario, not just what Ford calls Southern Ontario are, are struggling. Um, and, and getting full, I get that. <clears throat> but to make our decisions solely based on this modeling, which has been inherently wrong, again, is not data-driven. You have to consider that. That is one factor, but you also have to consider all of this other stuff. And that's what it doesn't feel like the government is doing. Oh, I wanted to bring this up. So, so do you think that they're keeping Ottawa shut down um, oh, because the they want to yeah, because they want to transfer patients, they want to keep our ICU numbers low. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I just think I just think it's it's logistically. So, just to clarify, people, there's an article yesterday that said that um, Toronto GTA areas they might start transferring out some of their critically ill patients to the like outside the region, and I just think that's a logistic logistical nightmare. Like, I think if you're going to be 
sorting it out within the region, I think you're going to be as local as possible. So like personally, I would exhaust as much of my local resources. Unfortunately, I think it, it might mean even uh, slowing down uh, elective surgeries and stuff, at least temporarily. Maybe I, I would have to think about that harder. But certain, field hospitals, like didn't they say they were opening some field yeah, hospitals? It's harder for doing ICU field hospitals. Like you could do like, if you're going to do field hospitals, I would do it for like normal, uh, you know, like normal patients, or sorry, like non-intensive care patients. Um, just like what, by the way, the Civic just opened up their uh, extension, 40-bed extension, which is, I'm so proud, by the way, I, but I don't want to digress. 40-bed extension for ICU? No, no. for uh, Emerge, essentially. Uh, oh, okay. it's, it looks beautiful. Um the uh so i think what they'll end up doing is maybe with cl as close to the gt as possible so like kingston belleville you know all that kind of area first um and then um but like with uh, just re reading sharon's comments yeah they're already rejigging within the gta for sure like you we are our colleague uh on Dube. I know his hospital, especially early in the pandemic, they were probably the first ones that got hit hard. They were transferring their patients out. Um, but I think they'll still stay as local as possible. They might extend out like to us, like it, it's just a logistical It's hard. Like that's a day. That's one day of an ICU nurse potentially being gone in and out to be able to transfer a patient. The resources would be insane. And the other part of this is early in the pandemic, I, this is a bit controversial to bring up. So just don't attack me. This is just what was talking about in the, uh, in the, amongst the uh, intensivists and the, and the government was that triage system of really looking at, are your, are your IC patients likely to survive? They, they developed a triage system to, to really ask ourselves, you know, are these truly ideal ICU candidates? And I don't know if that's factoring in, um, being factored into all of this. Um, so um, to answer your question directly again, um, is this reason why they are, what was the question again? Why they- uh, Why they kept Ottawa shut down because they want to save oh. the ICU space for transfers. That's just an idea that came to mind yeah. when I saw that transfer. I mean, I mean, certainly it could be part of the, like who knows what they're thinking. It could be part of their- their their formulation but once again i still haven't heard you know if you are truly vaccinating the people that will end up in your icu that should significantly reduce their risk of absolutely uh, like of, if of you hit up. if you hit everybody 70 and up with vaccinations then this icu thing should not be a problem yeah. you will still get some people in for sure but it shouldn't be a problem but um, and it, you don't even have to it, it does like i think of you know like you know it doesn't even have to be 70 and up, but it's 70 and like comorbidities. Like mm -hmm. if you really want to focus it, like I think you easily could be, if you need to narrow it because of volume, like it's, you could easily do that because it's clear that, you know, those are the risk factors. Um, yeah. But within a couple months, I bet you they could get everybody in that area that you're talking about, like 70 and up with risk factors and all people 80 and up or whatever. And they, they would basically snuff out every almost everyone who's ending up in icu 
like yeah. almost everyone. And then the ICU occupancy issue is not a problem. And then they should be able to lift a lot of the restrictions and businesses should be able to get back to normal. Like, I think, I think that, like you said, that that's not being taken into play. The other thing I just want to mention before we go, I know I keep going is um, like a lot of people will hear this and say like that we're against lockdowns and we're against, you know, shutting schools down and stuff like that. And I just want to, like, I just want to say that it's all about that cost benefit analysis. If a place is overrun with COVID, if the ICUs are full, if the schools are seeing significant amount of spread, if kids are getting sick or they're getting sick and spreading it to, you know, people who shouldn't get sick, then yeah, absolutely. We need to take those measures. So it's not that we're against taking restrictive measures. It's just that our response, our reaction is that it has to be data driven. It can't be just because you're afraid. Yeah. Focus it on areas where the problem is. And I, I, I have a feeling you would see better results. You know yeah. what I mean? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. All right, mommy. Oh, the only other thing I got to say too is like, because this was sneaky too, this uh, percent positivity as a, a metric for uh, closing down schools because like the 12 year olds and unders were you know, 20% percent positivity. Just remember that denominator, people. You had to get tested all the time back in September, October, because if your kid had the sniffles, you know what I mean? And you're not, a lot of those tests aren't happening now because, you know, you're, you know, your kid, you're, you're on holidays, you know, they're not at risk of spread, you're locked down. So to use that as a metric, like your pre-test probability of having COVID now, and to go, if you went to go te- get tested was much higher than in September and in October. So um, just keep that in mind because that, that's not a fair like on its own, it's not, it's not enough information to say that's right. So you're saying the rate, the rate of positive tests, like, so the percent of people who are are being found to be positive in the young, yeah, exactly. has gone up. Um, but the number of people overall getting tested in that age group has gone significantly down. So when you change the denominator, when you change the equation, you can't interpret the results. And the reasons to get tested, like, you know, no one's like the amount of asymptomatic testing right now for a kid has got to oh, be almost nothing. Almost none. Like, like relatively speaking. Yeah. Where are the kids going? They can't go do anything. Right. Yeah. So, so they're, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, I had to make that plug. Anyway, I'm doing CTV soon and, uh, yeah. Gotta get my got my mac- maquillage on. Got my, my pretty. <laughs> oh my look pretty. Okay, like, good luck with that. You might need some time. Yeah. Oh. All right. Pray for me. All right, Quadcast Nation. Thanks for joining us. Hope that was helpful. Peace. Bye. Thanks for listening, Quadcast Nation. Follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter at Quadcast. Leave any comments at Quadcast99 at gmail.com. Leave that five-star rating. You know what matters. It helps us out tremendously. Helps with the visibility. We love hearing from you guys. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll connect again real soon. Peace.